Father, how blessed are we to know you. You're real, you're personal, you exist. And you are, your word tells us, holy, and you are also love. Thank you. Thank you for making a way to love us in spite of our unholiness. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for every blessing that you've given us along with him, though no surpasses the blessing of knowing you through the gift of your son. Give us now, Lord, humble, attentive hearts to hear your word, and most importantly, to love you through it and obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Happy New Year, everybody. Forgot to say that to the 9 a.m. crowd. I apologize to them. Maybe they'll hear that I messed up. Before we open the Bible for the first time together as a, as a congregation in this new year, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the joy that I have of being part of this church family. Um, I was so apprehensive when we came from Mexico to return here to our home church that really watched us grow up, speaking of my wife and myself. Uh, but knowing you and learning to love and to know God better because of the time I've spent with you has been just an indescribably great joy. Thank you so very much for your generosity at all times, week by week, as we strive together to give to the Lord and to His work. And thank you especially for your generosity at Christmas time. It, it makes all the difference in the world, literally. We won't get to see what your generous Christmas gift did. I know Pastor Jim's already told you about that and celebrated it. You, you blew right by the goal. And it's going to go to hard places. Just tell you two of them. It's going to, part of that offering is going to a place in Pakistan where you have brothers and sisters who meet in a, in a public and actually well-known, rather historic church. It's been there for quite a long time. But on the average Sunday, they walk past heavily armed people who are not there to intimidate them. They're actually there provided by the government to protect them. They don't know from day to day when they might face violence simply because they love and trust Jesus. We're going to strengthen that work. Another portion of your gift is going right across the county line to Los Angeles County to an organization that we love and support. And what they do is, is very unique. In fact, we'll, we'll never meet any of the people that they serve because they minister to children who have been rescued from sex trafficking. And specifically what that looks like is on the night that a child, boy or girl, generally a girl, is rescued by law enforcement and taken to the police station. They're no longer processed into the criminal justice system as they once were. Now someone from this organization comes to them at the police station at that very moment and starts providing them what is called wraparound care until they graduate from high school or are old enough, well-trained enough, well-educated enough to begin making their own way in life. We know it works because one of the key leaders in that organization was rescued from that very life. Now she rescues and helps encourage and support and mentor and heal children who were once in the terrible position she was once in. So it's, it's so Christian because you just gave 
to strangers, not knowing what effect it would have, not knowing what help it will offer and what difference it will make, but it will. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we strive to obey God and do what He's commanded. Because it's right and it's also good. And these years that we've shared with you have just been so very blessed and I'm so very grateful. I say the same thing on the first Sunday, I think, of the last few years. I I feel it really and experience it every day. But thank you. We leaders in the church, we we treasure your time. We treasure your trust, not just your financial giving, but the time and the talent you give. I literally don't have the time, and they don't want the attention. Some of you do the most God-sized, Jesus-shaped work I've ever seen anybody do, and you do it quietly, and you do it well, and only the people you're blessing and reaching know about it, but God knows about it, and together we all make it count forever. We're a family. We're not a service organization. We do a lot of service, but we're not a service organization. The New Testament analogy, you read it right through the New Testament, and sometimes you just write it off as kind of a weird cultural thing, an anachronism that no longer fits in our time. The first Christians called each other brother and sister. That's intentional. That's biblical. It doesn't mean that it's a, it's a nicety. It's not something, it's not pastoral hyperbole, because pastors are pretty pretty notorious for laying it on kind of thick and not meaning half of what they say. When the first century Christians called each other brother and sister, that's how they behaved. They treated each other as family. Many of them had lost their biological family because of their faith. They had been cast out of their family. They had been separated from their jobs and from their former friendships, and they became a community, a family that loved and supported and cared for each other as their own family once did. And that's so important because I don't know if you've heard this, but the plague of the 21st century in America is loneliness. We've created a culture where almost everybody has the basics to survive. A lot of people suffer and struggle, and I'm not minimizing poverty, but we've developed economically and culturally and socially to the point that relatively few people in America actually starve or die from exposure. Most people are sheltered and fed, but they're dying on the inside because they're lonely. And our church is built to and should, not as a slogan or a marketing idea, but because it's a biblical commandment, our church should run on love. That's the commandment we were given, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to turn to our neighbor and love our neighbor, how are we supposed to love him again? The way we love ourselves. And that's enough for a lifetime. And that's what we're called to do, to, in personal relationship with God, love him with everything he's given us. And then because we love him and we're surrounded by people made in his image, we then turn and with the same love that he first gave us, we love our neighbor. So my prayer, my commitment, and sometimes my pain when I get a text message from someone who's lovingly honest with me is that none of you who call this church home or make this your church home eventually, if you're new and checking us out and 
God leads you to stay here and become part of this family, that none of you would ever feel lonely in the community of the church. A lonely Christian should be a contradiction. We should have friendships and love enough for each other that no one is lonely. And to be very practical, that doesn't always mean that the pastoral staff just does more and gets out there more and mixes it up. Sometimes it does. Sometimes we should. But with a staff as small as ours as any church would ever have relative to the number of people who come here, it's not just a few serving the others, it's a family loving one another. So that's my invitation, that's my call, that this year we would keep the great commandment at the center. That we would love God so much that we can't help but love each other and then love people in that knowledge, love people beyond these walls who this morning may not know or care that God exists. They may not even believe it. They may think you're wasting your time coming here listening to some guy talk about an ancient book written in different languages. They might just think it might be at best a socially good idea that doesn't really have any application for life as it actually exists in the real world, but it does. And love is what makes all the difference. Father, may it be true. May it be more than a, a few minutes at the beginning of a year, but may it be true that we love you more and more and more because we're persons and we can change and grow and because you're a person, Lord, who is ever-present. Let us grow in our trust and love for you this year. And let us know from you, may you be the witness of our growth in love for our neighbor. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you had the January letdown yet? Some of you laugh, perhaps politely, but laughter usually signals recognition. What happens in, the, in January? Well, for one thing, the bills start coming in. You look at your app or your statement and you say to yourself, I don't remember spending that much. I thought we were good this year. And you weren't good. You were, you were terrible, actually. And now the merchants want their money. Has that happened to anybody yet? Some people have a struggle through the Christmas season, I understand that, but I think all of us, have, no matter how much we enjoyed Christmas, all of us struggle a little bit when it's over, because the tree goes in the trash. Not an artificial tree, don't do that, that would be wasteful, but if, you, if you're a traditionalist, if you love the classics and you drag an actual tree into your living room, and you decorate it, and you put up all the lights, eventually it starts dropping needles everywhere, and it doesn't smell as it once did, and all the presents are gone, and the kids, God love them, broke three ornaments this year, and this is why we're always buying new ones. And everything has to be undecorated, everything has to come down, and now here you are, it's over. Friends or family that you delighted in because they came this year, they're gone. You don't know based on the calendar, social obligations, their jobs, their kids, whether they'll actually be able to come next year. And then the bills hit and here you are with the letdown. Has it happened to any of you? Am I bumming you out? 
and it's difficult. So this year, instead of doing something that is almost cliche and pump you up to reach all your goals, which is also important, I want to talk to you about one of the most elusive things in life. It's always been elusive. It's not natural to the human heart apart from God. Even when a person finds God, they have to learn it and they have to grow in it. If Paul had to learn it, and he says so, if the unmatched Apostle Paul had to learn and grow in this, certainly I will. And I'm talking about contentment. Real honest question. I want you to reflect for just a moment. Do you experience yourself when you're honest with yourself? You don't have to tell anybody else. Don't tell your neighbor and don't look at your neighbor. If you're with your spouse or your girlfriend, partner, whatever your buddy is, if you're with your battle buddy this morning, okay, don't, don't look at them and tell them what you think about their situation. Just think about you for a moment. Are you contented? And I don't mean complacent. I don't mean that you've given up, that you have no goals, that you're apathetic or indifferent to life and moving forward and doing better and getting more. I'm just talking about day-to-day life as you have it right now with the life, the health, the body, the money, the opportunities that you have right now. Do you experience yourself? Do you diagnose yourself as contented? If most people are honest... Most people will say they struggle. That's why it's so important. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 13, and let's hear about contentment. Hebrews chapter 13, please. If you're unfamiliar with the name of the book, if the Bible's kind of a new thing to you, the book is called Hebrews for a very simple reason. It was written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Jesus himself was Jewish, so the first people to hear the gospel were Jews like him. Many of them, in spite of tremendous social pressure and struggle, had opened up their Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and found that the prophecies were true. They had either personally seen or heard the witness from those who were there to know that this man was not like any other who had ever been born. He was not even like the prophets who had come before and written about him. This really was God's son. This really was God's Savior. They'd heard about it all their lives in the synagogue. They had taken to heart the promises and the prophecies that spoke of him, but now they found him, and they're Christians. But the book of Hebrews was written precisely because after some time following Christ, there has been a social backlash, and following Jesus has started to cost them. And the whole book of Hebrews presents one simple idea that whatever they're comparing Jesus to, including their former life, Jesus is just better. He's actually the best. He's superlative. There's no one else Anywhere like him, there never will be. So the whole call of Hebrews is, Jesus is better, hang on to him. Don't back down, don't back off, don't give up. Suffer if you must, but don't give up on Jesus because he really is the one and no one else is coming. And that's the whole book. But if you'll notice, we're right at the end of the book. 
And as biblical letters tend to do, it gets really personal and really practical at the end, and it gives some really simple, helpful instructions that really, as I've tried to explain to this point, have everything to do with Jesus. I had it printed in your bulletin, so I'd like us to do something we seldom get to do because there's so many different translations of the Bible. I'd like us to read it together. Cool? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Please read the Bible with me. The Bible says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. That's the commandment. And it's hard. Keep your life free from love of money. Keep your life free tells me it must be an issue of maintenance. It must not be the kind of thing you can decide in a moment and be done with. If you're going to relate well to money and not love money, it's something that you constantly have to be vigilant about. It's not a one-time decision. It is something that is cultivated. It is something that is learned. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. And my question for you is this. Is loving money really that bad? Well, you're in church. You know the right answer. I just read you something. You kind of know where this is going, right? I've tipped my hand pretty hard here. But is loving money really that bad? Isn't loving money actually the way things get done? In other words, there was this movie. I didn't see the first version or the um, remake, which I'm told was terrible. But a generation ago, Michael Douglas made a very famous movie called Wall Street in which he appeared as a man named Gordon Gecko, and Gecko had a very famous creed. Anybody remember that? Greed is good. Greed is good. That's how things get done. That's how stuff gets made. That's how houses get built. That's how industries move Forward. That's how life gets better. Don't cut off greed. Greed is good. See, right? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. In 21st century America, most people hear that as just give up. Whatever you got, just settle, be done with it, grit your teeth if you have to, fake it until somebody believes that you're happy, and just be. Just sit there, wait to die. Is that what it means? No, look, it has to do with love. See, the great commandment I was talking about earlier, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the heart of the matter. That's the heart of the Bible. Money can be enjoyed. God has all the wealth in the world, and you better believe that God Himself enjoys what He made and what He has. Nothing wrong with enjoying it. Certainly nothing wrong with using it. 
We're going to use money in a sense when we send this money across the world and across the county line to do the kind of good work I was just describing. We're going to use earthly wealth to do a world of good. And a young girl you will never meet will have her life changed, God willing, forever. Not only by the care, but hopefully also by coming to know the love of Christ in person. And it will be different for her on earth and in heaven. And part of that instrument, the tool to help that happen, is money. So money can be enjoyed. It can and must be used. It can be earned. It should be. Bible condemns people who can work and refuse to. Some of the strongest language in the Bible is aimed at sloth and laziness and laying in bed all day thinking about your problems, hoping somebody else will come along and help. No, nothing wrong with striving, nothing wrong with achieving. God Himself works, God creates, God enjoys. It's not that He earns, He just owns Nothing wrong with any of that. Where's the problem? The problem is taking those God-given things and taking the next step, which is so easy, and turning around to money, and instead of enjoying it, beginning to love it. It's the same with your work. And I'm not trying to be picky about words. I'm just trying to present an idea. When we say, I love my work, That's amazing. Very few people do. I am blessed that I am one of those people who actually loves his work. But what I really should say, if I was really careful with the idea, is I greatly enjoy my work. Because if I start in a true, passionate sense to love the work, who might be disappointed? My family, for one thing. And that's chronic among people who serve other people. Dad has time for everybody except us. He never comes home because the people he really cares about are out there. None of them live in his house. That's the difference. Again, I'm not trying to be picky about words. You can keep saying that you love pizza, and frankly, you you should. That's a reasonable thing, okay? (laughs) I think pizza is one of those many good gifts that God gave us. But if you start loving pizza in a real way where it dominates your thoughts, it orients your thinking, it becomes your reason for existence, you're in real trouble. And the Bible says keep your life free from love of money because I don't know if you've noticed the trouble with money is it is so lovable. It's so easy to love it. Instead, you should be content with what you have. In other words, satisfied day by day. Even as you work, even as you strive, even as you push forward, you remain contented and satisfied and grateful for what you have at this moment. So yes, loving money is actually pretty bad, and it's not just this little verse that says so. This is an idea that runs right through the Bible. Let me show you quickly. It's in one of the Ten Commandments. Read this with me, please. Exodus 20, verse 17 says this. We're in the Ten Commandments. We've dialed the Bible back all the way to its second book. God is explaining to Israel who He is and what He wants. The Ten Commandments express His character and His will. They should be obeyed, but nobody can. They're a law that sets a standard that only perfect people can meet. And I don't know if you've noticed, there are no perfect people. 
Everyone breaks these laws. Everyone fails at this. And what that was meant to do was open you up to the grace of God, to measure yourself by the true standard and say to yourself humbly, I cannot do this. I must have God forgive me instead. That's what Jesus is about. That's why He came. But the Ten Commandments, to be clear and to be sure, are right. And here's one of them, Exodus 20, verse 17. Read it with me. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And you immediately notice that we're in ancient times, right? Have you coveted your neighbor's donkey recently? (laughs) Some places in the world, people still might, but not here. But the neighbor's Corvette, ah. The neighbor's wife, the neighbor's husband, the neighbor's house, the neighbor's salary, oh, the neighbor's pension, oh, that must be nice. You know, that guy has a lifetime pension. It's all taken care of. He doesn't have to worry about anything. And comparisons start. And that's the heart of the matter. President Roosevelt famously said that comparison is the thief of joy. And this coveting, this loving, this desiring after what is coveting, it is resentfully desiring for yourself what others have. It's the inability to say, that's nice, I'm happy for them. It's, I want that. And in the bottom, I should have that. Why does he have that? When do I get mine? This is coveting, and it's harder than ever because human comparisons have always been part of our nature, but now we have machines in our pocket that make the comparison constant. It's called a smartphone. And it's called social media, and I don't know if you've noticed, our whole world is dominated by 24-7 connectivity where you now have the ability to peek secretly into other people's lives, admire what they look like, what they have, what they do, and deep inside yourself feel discontented. And we've got the research. I'll forward you as many articles as you want. It's literally killing us. Depression, anxiety, including things that are severe like suicide, are climbing since the advent of the smartphone. When we reached a tipping point where social media was present and beside and in the hand and purse and pocket of more than half of America, and it's much more than half now, we unwittingly set in motion a comparison machine that absolutely kills contentment. And I'll tell you something about social media if you haven't figured it out. It's a lie because they're showing you their highlight reel where you're aware of your blooper reel. You're living your bloopers, watching their highlights and feeling worthless in comparison. This is one of the reasons that we're commanded, do not covet anything that your neighbors have, that your neighbor has. Folks, listen, this isn't just a principle for better living. It's a righteous commandment from a just and holy God. This book, the Bible, is not a book filled with life hacks. It's not just good ideas. 
They're the expressions of the right way to live. And generally speaking, not always, if you do what God says and knows is right, generally speaking, life will be better. But that's not the point. The point is, a contented life is a right life. It's a righteous life. That's why we have to grow in it. And it's not just here. It's all over the Bible. We move over to the New Testament. You find a verse like 1 Corinthians 5.11. Check this out. This is severe. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 says, But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, anyone who claims to be a Christian. I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or what? Or greed. Does it surprise you that sexual immorality and greed are right beside each other? Isn't that like a massive escalation? To say that sexual immorality of the kind that ruins lives and sometimes in them is the same, in the same category, can be listed credibly right beside greed? Greed is serious. It's not that greed is good, it's actually that greed is cancer. I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, in other words, has taken anything and replaced God with it, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There's a verse you don't often heard, you don't often hear read or much less applied. Why is that? Why should Christians withdraw and stop treating such a person as if he were what he claims to be? A Christian, because, as I'm going to show you next, he's actually fallen into a sleep that if, he does, if God doesn't wake him from it, he'll die in. The choices he's made, the life he has, actually gives convincing evidence that he doesn't know God at all. And if you keep treating him as if nothing is wrong... You're not helping him, you're actually acting like you hate him. You're enabling him into a life, a deadly life that he's chosen. Paul comes right back to this idea in Ephesians 5, verse 5. This is heavy, but read it with me anyway. Let's read this aloud as well. Ephesians 5, verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Sexual immorality, sexual scandal, rightfully and understandably, shocks everybody. He did what? To his sweet wife? Those poor kids. Those are the conversations. When someone destroys his life, maybe his career through sexual immorality, but please notice covetousness is right there beside it. And Paul says the trouble with this is those people are giving evidence that they have no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, they're not in the family at all. We've got the culture has taught us something deadly and something opposite of what the Bible is telling us. What I'm trying to tell you is this, contemporary culture has turned the sin of covetousness into a virtue so that if you 
drive on always to have more. That's how you have a great life. That's how you give your kids a better life. And it's wrong. It's actually destructive. And I want to be as practical as I can by giving you some signs of how this shows up. Because, see, very few people would say that they love money. Most people have more self-awareness than Gordon Gecko, And very few people at a family gathering would say, this year I am most thankful for my greed because it has made me even awesomer this year than I was last. It doesn't happen. But we know that greed and covetousness and its ugly little cousin envy which is all comparing and all desiring and all resenting. All these things are tied together. We know that's a fact of life. We just generally think that other people are worse at it than we are. So let me just give you what mechanics call three idiot lights on your life dashboard to tell you how you may find out that you've fallen in love with money. If you're unfamiliar with the term, I'm not trying to be rude, an idiot light is that little red light on your dashboard that comes on to tell you something's wrong. They call them that. People who are into cars call them that because mechanics long ago discovered that people will not read a gauge, okay? The arrow's all the way over where it shouldn't be, but people are paying no attention. So some smarter person said, not everybody thinks like an engineer. Let's just give them a bright red light. Maybe if we start tanning their faces with a bright red light, they'll realize something's wrong and pull over. These are the three idiot lights of loving money. What can you do with money? Well, you can get it, you can spend it, and you can keep it. That's all you can do. And it's all necessary. It's all good. But here's how you know you've taken it too far and you've begun to love it. With getting, it looks like overwork and endless stress and the decision that all else, including the family, can suffer. I can just tell you from the perspective of someone who's lived outside the country and as a missionary and a pastor has had the privilege of meeting every kind of person that walks this earth. I've been at many deathbeds in two countries. I've watched paupers, literally people who will receive state help to be buried. And I've watched some of the wealthiest and most accomplished people in Mexico in the United States die and their deaths are no different. And not always, because that's a brutal stereotype. It's not always true. But on two or three very notable occasions right here in Orange County, I've stood beside a dying, wealthy, and very accomplished person and had the heartbreaking realization that all these people standing around him or her, his kids and grandkids, didn't want to be there. Because he had gained that wealth at the expense of a relationship with them and the kids were having a really hard time figuring out why we should care now in the last few hours of his life. That's what it looks like to love money and emphasize the getting. They're spending too. That just means loving stuff and finding your security and identity in it and basically that's our whole economy really. Um, I had the real joy of having both kids at home. Ryan came back, was home for Christmas. That was a new thing because he's always been home for Christmas, but now it's kind of up to him whether he wants to come home for Christmas, and he did, so that was great. 
And all he did was eat and sleep and surf, pretty much in equal portions. And he did a little shopping, so we went into one of our famous and local and revered surf shops, and I noticed something really interesting. One of our famous, super cool, trend-setting, influence-making surf shops sells a little plastic coffee tumbler that is almost disposable. It's that cheaply made. I know that's true because they sell the exact same one at 7-Eleven. <laughs> Here's the difference. 7-Eleven will give it to you for two bucks filled with coffee. The surf shop, six bucks, no coffee. <laughs> What's the difference? Surf shop's cool. You want to wear their logo. In fact, you pay them money to advertise their brand. And you wear that new hoodie, and he was. It was really cool. It's kind of cool to walk in with the brand at the place that sells the brand, and the, customer, the cashier's like, yeah, you get it? And he's like, yeah, I do. And it's very strange. <laughs> and it's not the product. It's the convinced us about the coolness and the identity, and I surf, I do this, I'm part of this mystical life that uses the ocean of the energy, the energy of the ocean to do this amazing thing of standing on a waxed piece of plastic and going and doing tricks, and it's amazing, and nobody does that about 7-Eleven. <laughs> the only people who wear 7-Eleven gear are the people who work there, and if you've noticed, they take it off as soon as they leave. <laughs> That's the point. They've convinced us, whether it's that or a really uber-cool brand that has the audacity of charging $60 for a knit beanie. It literally cost a dollar to make. Why the difference? Because a tiny little patch in the right color scheme tells others, this guy gets it. He's made it. He can afford that. That's how you know you're loving money when those starts of those things start mattering to you. When will those things matter to you? All your life. You'll fight that battle forever. That's why it says, keep your life free from the love of money. The third light, there's getting, there's spending, and then there's keeping. Of course, if you have any sense at all, you won't just earn it and spend it all. You want to keep some of it, whether it's cash or things. And what that looks like is you give very little to God or to other people. You're not a generous giver. You're giving at best when you love money is you earn all you can, spend all you want, and then if there's anything left that doesn't hurt too much, then you give that away. That's a person in love with money. And you fight it all your life. That's why you have to grow in contentment, and there's nothing like giving, watch this, to not only reveal but create Christian character. Your giving is a measure, really, of how much you're like Jesus, because Jesus gave Himself. It's a measure of how much you actually trust Him, and that's why you grow in it, and you have the rest of your life to do it, but you only have this lifetime to do it. And because it's so crazily expensive to live here, let me say a word, especially to younger people in our congregation. This matter of giving doesn't get easier when you get older. See, the lie you tell yourself when you're young and just getting started is, if I can only do this next thing, 
graduate, get this job, get this raise, get this promotion, get into my own place. If I only have this little benchmark, then I'll really get serious about being generous, and you won't. You're as generous today as you have been becoming all of your life. So my plea to you biblically is to begin with your getting and your spending and your keeping right now, trusting God and doing what He asks because it actually doesn't get any easier. And another thing about those Christians in this church who are younger than I, we've unwittingly saddled you with a burden of comparison that no Americans have ever, ever shared before. You live in an era era that is so hyper aware of image and has made it so possible to make your life about what you can achieve, what school you can get into, who you hang out with, what you wear while you hang out with them, that we have made it almost impossible to be contented. But you must. It's right and it's good for you. And say, Bruce, you've spent all this time on the first half of the first verse, and we're concerned because we notice there's two verses. Are we going to have lunch on time? Yes, actually. Because what I've just explained to you is the hard part. The rest of it is an explanation from God and a reassurance of why you can actually do this and why you should. God is such a good, loving Father that He seldom says simply, do this because I said so. He has the right to do it. He's God, and He occasionally does it. But generally speaking, what God does is give you a commandment and explain Himself. He'll tell you what kind of pain you're going to be spared or what kind of good you're going to enjoy if you trust Him enough to do what He says. And here's what He said. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. That's the commandment. And here's the reason. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He made a promise along with the commandment. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What the Bible's telling you here is you can actually live then and now, first century and 21st century, you can live with confident contentment. And the reason is one of the greatest promises in the Bible, which is at the end of verse 5, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You'll notice that's in quotes. The reason is the Christian Jewish author is citing the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament. But hang with me because this is going to get geeky for just a second. Can you hang with me? The book is called Hebrews, but the letter is written in Greek. Okay? Because these are Jewish Christians in the first century. They speak and read Greek. And this simple little promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, That's a beautiful promise, kind of repetitive, right, for emphasis. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's great. But Greek has a grammatical capacity that we don't have in English. In English, a double negative is terrible grammar. Bear with me if you love good grammar, much less if you teach it. If I say to you, I don't have no money, that's bad, right? What do we call that? Double negative. Terrible idea. Greek doesn't believe, first century New Testament Greek doesn't believe that double negatives are a bad idea. Greek has the capacity 
to use as many negative words as you want. You can pile up negatives for emphasis. And I think, as far as I can find in the Greek New Testament, and I checked with Pastor John, who's about to finish his PhD in the Greek New Testament, this is the strongest promise I can find in the Greek New Testament. Here's what it sounds like in English, if we pile in all the negative words. It says, like, it says something like this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said... I will never, ever leave you. No way. I will never, ever forsake you. If you count them, there's five negations, and the point is simple. You can stop loving money and be satisfied with what you already have because there is absolutely no way. No, 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 I will never leave you or forsake you. That's how you can live with contentment. The reaction? Easy, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? These people I'm comparing myself with, these people who won't let me advance, these people who are denying me jobs or promotions, I'm not afraid of them. I have the Lord as my helper, and He said, I will never, ever leave you. No way, I will never, ever forsake you. Here's what I've been trying to tell you. To be content instead of covetous, you have to trust God to take care of you. How much does it mean to God to take care of you? He sent His Son to die for you. Literally. God loved you with His very life. You can trust Him to take care of ordinary things like the rent. Because your heavenly Father has promised in this life, no matter what else anybody thinks or what else anybody does or what obstacles and roadblocks they put in your way and how hard it is to make it in this life, in this economy, at this time, you can trust the Lord because He said He will never, ever leave you. No, He will never, ever forsake you. Listen, we're at the start of a new year and there's going to be bad news in this one too. It's probably just me, but I seem to notice this year that the New Year's celebrations were more subdued than the ones I remember in the past. Life's hard. There's a lot of uncertainty. There is nationwide anxiety. There's all kinds of trouble. How do you cope? Not by striving and working and getting and spending and keeping more. You move forward by trusting your Heavenly Father who loved you at the expense of the life of His Son, to care for you, and He promised to do so. So in 2020, let's be content. Let's pray. Father, thank You. If there's a person here who doesn't know You, I pray, Lord, that though it wasn't the point of this message, they would have heard enough of Your love and Your sacrifice through Jesus to trust You. And for the many Christians who were here Help me, start with me, I pray, that we would live contentedly, striving, working, serving, pushing forward to be sure, but contentedly, because you have promised, whatever comes, you will never, ever leave us. Under no circumstances, ever, ever will you forsake us. Help us live in that confidence, we pray in the name of Jesus. Crosspoint said, amen.
God bless you folks. Listen, there's a cool little building here next door on the ground floor. I have a little water and a little coffee and a couple donuts. If you're new to the church or you've been coming for a while but we've never met, I'd love to meet you right across the way. God bless you.